I want to read you a quick passage out of Isaiah, just a few verses. You don't have to turn there. It's Isaiah 24. It says, The earth is defiled by its people, and they have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse consumes the earth, and the people must bear their guilt. Therefore earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. We're going to be looking at Revelation 21 tonight, and that's, that's a prophecy in Isaiah from thousands of years ago, and still we don't know how far in the future, that he said this is what it's going to look like. And in Revelation, we get to that point, and we see that happening. We're in Revelation 21. Last week, we looked at the great white throne judgment, finishing up chapter 20. Um, God's judgment on this world is complete. He's, he's judged his creation, both the earth and both people. Uh, he's kept every promise. He's fulfilled every prophecy. He's kept every principle of his covenant in every way. He hasn't, he hasn't broken anything. His judgment was perfect. Every unsaved person is in hell. The devil is a cast and locked in the abyss in hell. The demons and evil are there. And uh, all saved people are with God. Now, we're going to decide what state we're in right now tonight because that's kind of interesting. But nobody got left out. Nobody slipped through the cracks. No, uh, no, no, no money deals. Nobody bought themselves off. Nobody, nobody had any payoffs. Nobody escaped the judgment. There wasn't any innocent people got left out. There wasn't any guilty people that got in. God is perfect. And everybody faces that someday. And we, we've got the guarantee from Scripture that we're going to be able to depend on God's judgment to be 100% complete and true. And he's going to keep his word 100%. And, and when we get to this point of revelation and you realize that he hadn't missed a promise or a prophecy or anything yet, I think we can depend on living our lives with his Scripture every day when we go through it. And chapter 21 is kind of interesting. But eternity is set. In other words, we're to the point now where it's pretty much done. It's just us, the saved people, and Jesus, and what's coming next in 21. I was looking at uh, one commentator said about the great white throne judgment last week when we looked at just the sheer, uh, you know, agony that you would see in that as every person who don't know Christ is judged. He said the knowledge of final judgment calls all to repentance in the present for some day when it's no longer possible to ignore God and His perfect way, it'll be too late to repent. And I never thought about that, but it's coming a day when we, when we won't be able to ignore Him. What's the passage, I think, in Philippians 2.10 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You can avoid God all your life, but there's coming a time when that person and all persons are going to pay homage to who He is. And so when we look at that and we understand that, then, then what's next? What's in 21? Now, now, let me just kind of give you a little outline on something here. We're still in John's third vision. I don't know if we talked about this or not. There's four visions in Revelation. And when we see these things, we know he's in vision, so we know he's not talking about physical things in the sense that they're there in front of him. But the first vision starts in chapter 1, verse 10. And in each one of these, he, he'll say, I'm in the Spirit, is how we know it's a vision. The second one starts in chapter 4, verse 2, if you're interested. You know, that helps you break this down. The third one starts in chapter 17, verse 3, and then the fourth one will start in 21, 9, which we won't get to until next week, probably. So what we're looking at is the last part of this 
third vision. Now, there's a bunch of things going on from chapter 17. We've got the fall of Babylon, the great city, and that's, that's society as it collapses. And he talked about the glory that it once was. And John is writing Babylon because he understood how great that city was in the day. And the people would identify with that. And we understand today what he's talking about because it went from being such a great place to so, so pathetic that God has to judge it and it fell. Uh, and then he's talking about we, we looked at the second coming of Christ in here. We looked at the Battle of Armageddon, the Millennium, and then the White Throne Judgment last week. And the last thing we're going to see tonight in chapter 21 is he went from, from the evil of Babylon to the glory of the new city of the new Jerusalem. So you're going to see that contrast, and that's kind of where we're going with this, with this passage just a little bit in looking through all this. Now, last week in 20 verse 11, he said, I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for him. So the old earth, the old heavens, the old earth, the old skies, we know it's gone. Now, I don't know at this point what state we're in. We're with God. There's no heaven. There's no earth according to him. So you have to think about, okay, what does it look like, in, you know, and what we're doing here. And, and Isaiah, let me read you a passage out of Isaiah here. And, 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 and he said he's going to create a new heaven and earth, and we're going to read that in just a second. But it's very biblical and very prophetic. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, he says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I have created, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. And it's people of joy, and I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take light in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. So we have, again, the prophetic that God is going to recreate. And so let's look at verse 30, uh, chapter 21. I want to read down through verse 8, and then we're going to go back and kind of look at these verses individually because there's a, some awesome messages in here, I think. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. All right, now when we back up and look at this a little bit, there's a lot compressed into these eight verses. And he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And in that passage, he said there was no longer any sea. Now, we're going to have to accept the fact that we cannot, that is outside of our universe of understanding. Because... We have a new heaven and a new earth. And over in chapter 22, he says the sun and the moon don't have any need to shine on it. So whatever this is, we, we, we can't grasp that. It, it's going to be a place that we can be with God. But the, 
for our capacity to understand what that looks like and what that is, we can't do that. Because we can imagine living on an earth without sun or without moon or without the sea, which is your water cycle. So it just kind of tells us pretty quickly that whatever he's creating, it'll be better than anything we know, but it's out of our ability to understand at this point. And, uh, and he said there was no longer any sea. And a couple of things, some people say that, that what he means there by that is because the sea was looked at in those days as a place of evil. You know, the false prophet came out. It was a place that they feared. It's a place of unknown. So it could be, it could be either one. So it's however you would like to see that to make it work. And then he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. And so when, and, and when we try to, to uh, look at this, there's something interesting about this passage. Now, Jerusalem, 950 B.C. with Solomon, was, was at its peak. I mean, it was gorgeous. There was dignitaries came from all over the world to see it, to see the temple, to see Jerusalem. Uh, Queen of Sheba came and brought four tons of gold as a gift. And if you read back in those passages, she said once she got there, she said, I'd heard about it, but it far exceeds anything I could imagine. And she wasn't doing too bad if she could bring four tons of gold. So, so it must have been an awesome sight. But, you know, by... Uh, you know, later on, pretty quick, it was it was destroyed and, and burned, and it's just been a memory in the Jewish heart and mind since that day. I mean, they still fly the blue star of David on the flag, but it's never came back to that precipice. And and the other thing I thought interesting about this passage is why didn't he say just the new city of God's people? Why did he say Jerusalem? Kind of makes you. You know, it kind of adds credence that, that, that Israel is still part of this deal if you want to take the interpretation from that. Or you can just say John's writing so that the people that day will understand that he's talking about Jerusalem coming back. Either one's good interpretations, but it's just kind of ironic to me that he named the city the New Jerusalem and, and as, it's, as it's coming down out of heaven. Now, now, here's what I thought was interesting about that passage. And he said, I saw the whole city of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, where are we? What do you think is the inclination that that passage gives us? He said, I saw the new city coming down from heaven. And I got, that's where I got stuck on something. I'm going, okay, there's, there's something here we're not seeing. Think about that passage just a minute. If it's coming down, then that suggests that heaven's here. The new city is here. If it's coming down out of heaven's up, yes. But that's not where we're going to live. The heaven now is going to be replaced. This is our place of residence. God's going to prepare. It's coming down. And so when you, when you start digging into this, but, but I got to thinking, what was it like in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth what, and, and Adam and Eve? What was the setting? All right, but, but, but once he created them, it was here. It was a perfect perfect place to live. It didn't have to rain. The plants took care of themselves. Adam and Eve lived in peace and God fellowshiped and walked with them. I think he's just recreating what he had. What messed it up? Sin messed it up. He took Adam out of the garden. He took himself away from man because he couldn't look on it. To me in this day, he's, he's re now it's not going to be the same thing and we're in resurrected bodies and they were fleshly bodies. But God once again is going to live in fellowship with us. Now you think about that because we talk about God and how far apart we are and His ways and I'm, And He said, but someday 
you're going to sit at the table with me. I'm going to fellowship with you and be your people. And, and I think there's a powerful, a very, very powerful message in that when we look at that passage like that because it's just, it drives home the fact that, that he loves us enough that he's doing all that for us. And we're going to live in that city with him. And we'll get into talking about what that city looks like next year. Next week, I mean, and when we finish this up. But uh, next year, we might be that long. Boy, I'm going. <laughs> but, but everything's perfect again. You know, and, and he says in that passage just right below that, he said, uh, looking on down a little bit, he said, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, and we understand presenting as a bride. We see them coming in. The Jewish wedding was actually three phases. They had the betrothal, which was kind of a ceremony, and then they had the feast, and then finally the ceremony where the bride came in. So he's using that description language because the Jewish people would have understood that, and I think he's writing to the people of that day as well as today. And so they would have understood what that meant, this new beautiful city coming in. And it's, it's, God, it's God's masterpiece. It's his pearl. It's his, pride. It's his bride and, and, and price he's paid for it. And so, and, and, and the reason, if you think about this, the reason we're in this shape is because God created Adam and Eve, created a perfect place to live. But why did we get in the shape we're in? He gave us freedom of choice. This God said, I'm going to let you choose. He knew. He knew. He was going to let them choose. And so, we have to think that a God that loves us that much, and yet he's going to come back someday, and he says, but, but the message in here is there's only one or two ways to go in the end, and we saw that last week, and that's just what he keeps re- reiterating over and over and over. Verse, uh, verse 3, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And I'll be his people, and himself will be men, and I'll be their God. And then he says this, he said, I will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the older things have passed away. And again, there's that passage that says what's old is gone. But one of the commentators said in here that uh, wiping away the tear from the eye, it's not that we're going to heaven crying. There's not going to be any reason to cry. There's, there's not going to be any. And so, it, again, it's a perfect place where there's no suffering, no nothing, but perfect existence with a holy God in each other. And so, again, that passage is just, it's just reiterating over and over and over that uh, that's who we're called to be, and that's what it's going to be like in the end when we get there. And, and it, it's such a powerful verse when you start looking at that. Uh, I'll see, here's something else here. Verse, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear. And, and he said, again, he said there's just no reason to do it, no reason for, at all for anybody to, to have a tear in their eye or suffer. So, again, this just promise is coming through, continually coming through. And then he says in verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And again, we saw that over and over. And basically what, what's coming out of that passage, you remember the passage in Colossians 1.16 we looked at last week? He said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And, and again, it's just reiterating the fact that this is Jesus' world. And he has reclaimed it. And he said, I am the beginning. I started it. I'm the end. I'm going to end it. I'm going to see it through. And that's, that's the promise that we have, that the God that started this, Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. And he's going to see that through to the end. And, and we have Scripture just constantly goes through this and, uh, and just keeps reminding us of, of this as we, as, we, as we live life. And so, again, he just, he just reiterated who he is and who he is to us. And then he says in them, in that same verse, just a little bit further down in verse 6, he said, To him is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, there's a couple things in here I thought were interesting. Because he said, To him who is thirsty. And it, to me, it goes back to Matthew 5 and 6 Beatitudes. He said, One who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And he's describing an attitude here of a person who lives their life for God, who lives their life in light of Jesus Christ, who lives their life every day searching for what God wants. And Paul was a great example. Paul said, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They put him in prison. And he said, if I'm out, I'm going to preach Jesus. You put him in prison, I'll preach to the guards. You kill me, I'll be with Jesus. Take your best shot. I mean, he had... He had a thing on life, but at the same time, what Paul, people don't realize about Paul, if you want to think he's just some strung-out wild missionary, Paul actually taught in the synagogues in the morning. He taught in the I mean, in synagogues. He taught in the school in the afternoon, and he made tents at night. So he actually, I mean, he had a, a normal life. And he said, I have every reason to, to depend on the church for a living, but I choose not to. So... So he was a great example of someone whose, whose motivation was Jesus in everything that he did, and yet he lived life in the midst of that. And, and I think, again, that passage is just reminding us. And the other one he puts in here is the person that overcomes. That passage, that verse word is simply, I think, relaying the fact to those people who live out the gospel in their lives regardless of circumstances, regardless of burdens, regardless of costs, regardless of anything, is that they overcome. They live for Christ no matter what comes their way. Tragedy, whatever, they, they live for Christ. And if you think about that, one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness and one who overcomes, shouldn't that be a description of every believer? It really should. I mean, the world needs to be looked at us and go, I know what they I know their motivation to Jesus, and I know no matter what happens to them, they're not going to turn on him. But just a great description for us to say this is who we ought to be, and this is what we ought to be doing. And uh, and I think the verse just 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 again reiterates. I think if you look through 21 and 22 and you read them three or four times, God's wrapping up about a 20 chapter sermon here is what He's doing. It's kind of like he's going back because we'll see in just a minute something I thought was really, really interesting that kind of kind of threw me off just a little bit. But uh, again, just talking about how we ought to live and what we ought to look like. And God said, for those that seek me, I'll take care of them. And for those that overcome, it won't be in vain. And that's the thing that Paul tried to relate to us all the way through, you know, and when we were, when we read back in Scripture. So, you know, and, then, and then, we, then we get to this point. And this verse 8 I thought was very, very interesting. He said, but, all right, we're through. The judgment's done. We're standing out here looking at a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus. 
nothing but believers. And he says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fire lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Where did that come from and why? Why did he find it necessary to come back and say that there? It's done. It's over. I think that's the truth principle of this whole passage, personally. Anybody got any ideas, any thoughts on it? It's a contrast, but why even bother? There's nothing left but the saved, and we're, we're heading for eternal bliss with God. And why does, he, why does he prompt John to write that? Because John didn't just write that. God inspired him to write those words. Well, let's, let's, yeah, we do, and you're right. I'm going to get to, just, just look, cowardly. Talking about people that just don't have the, the guts to live out their faith. He, he used the parable, he said, where he sowed the seed on the rocky soil, and the people hung on for a little while, and then they quit. Vile. Everybody knows what vile is. Look, we can look around the world today, and, and it's not hard to understand somebody that's vile. Sexual immorality, murders, those who practice magic arts, adulterers, uh, that magic arts, that's a drug culture, that's the Greek in that is pharmaceutical. I think it's his, he's coming back. I think he's just reiterating, let me tell you something. Make sure you understand, because we're reading this beforehand. I think it's just a warning, because we have a culture in the church today that wants uh, the, the graces of Christ. They want the comfort. They want the, the confidence that they know the Lord, but they do. we're going to do it our way. And I think God is saying... You read 1 John 3, 4 through 10, and he talks about keep habitual sinning, keep on sinning. I think God is clear here. You can't do this. You can't claim him and live the way you want to. This list of vices, because now we all sin, you know, and, uh, and it happens. But this list of vices just says we cannot follow Christ and live like this. Now, we're all going to sin, but if it's not something that, that uh, convicts us and it's not something we deal with, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a warning. There's a whole lot of people out here trying to walk both sides of this fence. I think that's what it is, personally. And, of course, you know, because reading that, someone needs to read that and go, because, you know, we got people that uh, this is Sunday, this is Monday through Saturday. It could be work. It could be a lot of different things when we look at it. One writer said about this, he said, the time to strengthen the Christian faith is now before the test comes. And he said, we dare not compromise with the world's values or betray or slander fellow Christians before the world or indulge in false prophets of compromise in the church. And, and we see that culture today where we go, well, you know, it's, things have changed. Yeah, we do what we got to do. And, and one of the things, I, I was reading a book, and I had Sunday, I talked to my Sunday school class a little bit about it, and I want to share a few things. That's an old book by Carl Menninger called Whatever Happened to Sin? And the concept of this book is nobody sins anymore. Now, this was written in 1974, so it'd be kind of shocking to read this. But nobody sins anymore. We've got bad habits. We've got personality flaws and disorders. We've got addictions. We've got inherited tendencies. We've got social pressures and cultural influences. And some of us are victims and been victims, will be victims. We've got pressure to be tolerant. We've got business competition. we just got to get along, go along to get along sometimes in this whole world, don't we? And, uh, you know, the thing that we see in this, and I'm not making light of any of these. I've lost two good friends 
the alcoholism of the phone company. I've dealt with several of these in other professional and, and personal ways with people. I'm not making light of these issues, but I'm just saying, when it all comes down to the bottom line in Revelation, there's saved, there's lost, there's right, there's wrong. Right is righteousness, wrong is sin. And that's the thing we don't like to talk about today is sin, that we are sinners. And we, we live in a society that doesn't, that doesn't like to be put in that position. I'll read you something interesting here that he, he wrote in this. And he said, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared, along, the word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin anymore? Congress voted some years ago to require the president to proclaim each year a national day of prayer, and Truman began it in 1952. The following year, in 1953, President Eisenhower made his first proclamation, and in it he made a reference to sin. He borrowed the words from his proclamation from a call issued in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln, the country's, first, the country's most theological president up to that time. And he said in, this, in his proclamation, It is the duty of all nations as well as of all men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And in an article in Theology Today that kind of backed this up a few years later, it said none of Eisenhower's subsequent calls to prayer mentioned sin again. The word was not compatible with the commander-in-chief's vision of a proud and confident people. Since 1953, no president has mentioned sin as a natural failing. Neither Kennedy, Johnson, nor Nixon. Now, this is 74. Maybe the Bushes did, but I'd be willing to say nobody's called us sinners since then. He said, to be sure, they've skirted the word. The Republicans referred to the problems of pride and self-righteousness. The Democrats referred to the problems of shortcomings. But none used the grand old sweeping concept of sin. He said, I can't imagine a modern president beating his breast on behalf of the nation and praying, God be merciful to us sinners. So experts agree that would be the best place to start. So as a nation, we officially ceased sinning some 20 years ago, some 60 years ago. There's a lot of truth in that. There really is. We, we live in a society today that uh, we're selfish. We're motivated, we're technical, we're proud. I mean, we are. And, uh, but sin is sin, and sin is the problem, and sin is the thing we have so much trouble dealing with. God's not interested in the excuses. He's compassionate if you have some of these things going on in your life, and he's there to help. But he's interested in saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need help with this. Not that I got this problem and I got an excuse for it. And so that's some of the things we wrestle with. And I think in this passage, when, when he points that out, he's just, it's just a warning to say, look, you know, look, look what you're doing. And, uh, and I think that book just drives home. But that's an excellent book there when it talks about the concept of we don't sin anymore. And you, and you think about what that says to us. And the key is the attitude when we look at it. What was the, what was the passage, I think, where the, the, um, the tax collector and the Pharisee are praying? And the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like the tax collector. 
And the tax collector says, it beats his chest, don't even look at sky, and says, God have mercy on me. And Jesus said, that man's justified. When he left, he left justified. You know, we're heading for judgment someday in Revelation. That road is narrow. When he says it's narrow in Matthew, Revelation shows us it's narrow. It guarantees us that we're going to be face-to-face with him. It guarantees us that we're going to stand accountable. And it guarantees us we're going to be judged one of two ways, depending on if we know him. And sin is the issue. It always is. It's what separated us, and that's the thing that God's calling us, you know, to deal with when we look at this life every day. My thought on it is the question's not sin. I did, I do, I will again. I'm a sinner. The question is, what's my attitude about it? I think the truth principle in here is what, our, what is our attitude about the sin in our lives? When we sin, is it a burden to us? Does it convict us? Does it hurt us? Is it something we want to deal with and get out of it? Or are we just satisfied saying, that's a sin that God don't have any business dealing with. This is a sin that I like. This is a sin I struggle with. This sin is not even God's business. And we've got a lot of that going on, I think. But And the thing that we have, and, and, and I'll give you a good example. I had one pastor that wrote, a, wrote an article in one of my commentaries, and he went to a meeting of his denomination. And the talk in one of the meetings that day was that sexual immorality, they had just decided it was so irresistible that it's just better not to preach on it because you just offend so many people in your churches. So it's best just leave it alone. And he said, I went home and wept. Because he said, I've been called to preach the word. And he said, I don't want to hurt anybody, but God says sexual immorality is wrong. And yet, you see that culture generating today to say, well, we have to live with this, and we have to do that, and you have to put up with a few things. You know, when you start reading back through that list, sexually immoral, TV is so sex-driven today, it's scary. I mean, you know, in our culture, we can see that in our culture. We can see the moral breakdown in our culture. Well, go back and read Revelation. What do you think he's talking about when he's talking about Babylon and all these problems? He's talking about the failing of a people and his people. And the only light he has is us. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, where are we at in this game? To me, the bottom line, the message out of these six or eight verses, just wrapping up here, is that uh, God's Word, Scripture, Revelation, it guarantees us that it's all going to be set right someday. And it guarantees us it's going to be set right according to his terms. And his terms are, do you know me or do you not know me? And, and, and the issue of sin in our lives. The one thing that, that makes this kind of tough, and you have to be careful about it, and even when you read First John 3, 4 through 10, it talks about habitual sin. You don't ever want to question somebody's faith. But God says in this passage here, if you're doing all this, What's the next thing to say? You're going to be in the lake of fire. So you can walk around with whatever badge you want on, but a life speaks for itself. And Jesus says, I know who you really are, and I know what you're doing. And if you do this, and you live like this, and it don't bother you, I probably don't know you. That's between you and Jesus, and that's what we need to tell the world. But... You know, we shouldn't be afraid to look at that, and we shouldn't be afraid to... If i got a sin in my life that I'm not really too worried about, even if it's little, I need to get nervous about that. Because that's not what God wants. That's what I see in that passage, other than we see in the glory of God coming down. He's creating this beautiful place for us to live, and then all at once He hits us with all this. And we're going, what's this all about? But I think He's just coming back again and reiterating, 
in our lives as we, because, you know, it, there's two places in Revelation that tells us it's a blessing to study this book. I think this is the blessings in it when we realize just how important this is, just how critical this is, and just how serious God Almighty is about our lives, the condition we live them in, and the sin that's in them. And, and just to continue to look at that passage and say, thirst after righteousness and be overcomers. That's the testimony of a true believer. You know, I may be looking at a wall higher than I could ever climb, but all God is saying, you take what you got, where you at, and do the best you can with it, I'll worry about the rest of it. And if we can ever get that in our heads, in our hearts and minds, then I'm where God put me today and move on with it. He'll be pleased, and in the end, we won't be worrying about this. We'll be celebrating with him in heaven. But, uh, again, just a beautiful passage of telling us where we're going, what we can expect, but, but wrapped in that passage of warning about how we live and what we stand for and what we believe. There's, there's, there's so much coming out of the church today. I, I, I particularly don't even like the word Christian anymore. A better word is follower of Jesus because there's a whole lot of people claiming the name of Christian who, you know, we got whole denominations approving things that Scripture condemns. I mean, you know, and, and so we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? And I think it should be a call back to, to the true believers that God says, just live by the book and quit trying to make something out of it that it's not. But uh, for me, it's just a challenge for me to, to get my life on, on a higher plane. And, and, you know, I'm a sinner. I ain't got any problem with that. Listen, I mean, you know, fight that every day. And, and, uh, but I think when we're honest about it, and it, it's just like the one friend that I lost at the phone company was an alcoholic. We never could get him help because he never would admit he was an alcoholic. He died at 50-something years old. He said, I ain't got a problem. I just like to drink. And it was sad. Good, a good worker, good friend. But, uh, you know, if you can't admit you're a sinner, you can't get right with God. Because that's a non-submissive attitude to come before God and say, yeah, I want, I, I want the goodness of Christ. I want to be saved. I want to be part of the church. I want, I want that security, but I'm going to do this my way. That's non-submissive, and God don't work in non-submissive lifestyles and attitudes. You just don't. You can find that in Scripture. That's not for me. I mean, that's, that's just God in Scripture. But it's kind of my take on it. Any thoughts, any comments, any questions? I read two or three commentaries on that, and they seem to be saying there, that's the people that claim Jesus but are not. And I don't think it means, we, we all do. Would I lie to save my family in a heartbeat? I mean, if it meant death to my wife and I could lie and get us out of it, I'd lie. I mean, you know, if I was in a situation where someone was, was about to hurt us. I'm not talking about lying business or something like that. But most commentators say that they, they really believe he's talking about here Lying and living the faith. In other words, saying one thing and being another. And and we see a lot of that, you know, because he talks about the false people. You go over in the book of Jude, and he talks about, we may look at that a little later on, he talks about the false messengers that have moved into the church and just false witness. So, but yes, that's, but, but again, we've all sinned. It don't matter. Any sin can keep us out. The point is, if we know Christ, those sin has been dealt with. It does. It does. That's why most commentators think it implies more than just a lie. Because, yeah, we've all lied <laughs> to some degree in something. I mean, if it was nothing but five minutes extra on a time report, and may not even intentionally did it. But, you know, well, that's what I'm saying. When her, a sin is a sin. So any sin can keep us away. Any sin puts us in a position of needing forgiveness. 
But again, that's what, and so that's what got me on that passage. I'm going, why does he put that passage right here, that whole passage? It seems so out of place. But I think it's just to come back and say, check yourself, check your people, check your church. This is what I, this is, this is what it takes to be one of mine. And if you see this, then perhaps there's a problem that needs to be looked at. Like I said, I, you never want to, question somebody's faith but your you know your fruit proves who you are as scripture says and uh, you know if your fruit is this junk then then something's wrong that's the message of revelation there's not but two places to be when it gets there and there's not but two ways to get there you're either for jesus or not and and and, and he's not going to miss anybody that that's that's the beauty i think of studying this book that We've got this faith thing so spread out, you know, we got it all figured out. And he says, yeah, you got it figured out. When you get here, I'm going to figure it out for you. You either know me or you don't. You either live for me. And I, I think as believers, you know, we're going to have to answer for what we did or didn't do with what he gave us. I mean, you know, I, and what he called us to do. Now, it's not going to be anything like the burning lake of sulfur, but I think that's going to play more on just our hearts. And our soul realizing that we should have accomplished a lot more. And uh, it might have amounted to more people being in heaven someday, you know. But yes, you're right. There's two choices. And one's real good and one's real bad. There's no way out of it. Anybody else? Just thought it was an interesting passage, uh, a challenging passage. You know, you, you think we're, we're through and God's about to bring us into this beautiful place to live for eternity. And then he goes back to preaching on sin again. You're going... Come on now, we know we we made it through all that, but there's a purpose in that, a real and a, but just encouraging us. But the hunger and thirst after righteousness and be overcomers. I think that's a beautiful way to, to describe the attitude we should have. That and and we're all going to have better days and worse days than that. And some days we're going to knock it out of the park, and some days we're not going to do so good. But if our attitude is each day trying to be what God wants us to be and needs us to be in this world. He can work with that. And it definitely needs us because, I mean, our world, you can read Revelation and read about the Great Babylon, but our world is closing in, you know, daily on, on just worse and worse immorality and, and those things. And you can just, uh, just, there's numerous things every day in the media and all that you can look at and go, how did we get to the point where we do that or think that or allow that? But we do. And it ought to scare us as believers. Not scare us. If Jesus comes back, he comes back. Come on. But the thing that I think ought to bother us is when we look at these judgments and how severe they are. I hope, I, you know, it, it might be tough to get to heaven someday and God say, that's 40 people that if you just spent some time with, they might have been here. I don't know that he would do that. I hope he don't. But he might. He might just say, Alan, you'd spend a little more time there. That would have gotten that been out in get into some other issues there with salvation. Or at least he might have said, you missed a blessing for not witnessing that. And I sent somebody else, but you missed a blessing on it. I, and I re- you said that much better than I could. I think that's what the commentator was going for there, that, that living a lie, living as one of Jesus's but not being, yes, you sinned a lot. I think so. Well put, Bill. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Yeah. That's the scary thing when we start comparing one sin to the other, I think. You know, yeah, it's instead of preaching against both of them, and, and, it, and it's hard on preachers today. I mean, you know, there's, 
We as a staff have talked before about addressing certain things in sermons and all that needs to be addressed in the church, but knowing there's going to be fallout from some of it. You know, it, it's tough sometimes. And uh, because uh, we have a society today that does not like to be meddled with. And, uh, but a pastor's called to open this book and tell people what's in it. Don't mean you don't love them. You just said tell them what's in it. And you're also called to live it as best you can. And, and so I think that's part of the problem in, in, the, in the desire to grow churches and, and, and be successful and, 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 and to reach people. We go, well, let's just, let's just not get too overzealous about what we preach out of here, you know. And yet, in the end, God said, that's sin, that is. He's not going to separate some sins out and say, well, this one's not as bad and you didn't. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? that? That's what's got us in trouble, I think. And when we always do it in love. We have to do it with compassion. We have to do it in a way that we don't alienate people. But we also have to do it in a way where they know that you told them the truth. You told them in love. You care about them. You want to help them. You want to see them climb out of that. But you're not going to just ignore it. And particularly, you know, if they ask you about it. Or if you need if you need to cover it in Scripture. If you, if you do an expository preaching and it's the next verse, you got to talk about it. You can't skip it. And, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the sin... Well, the sin hurts anybody that sins, but and that's that's the whole message of Revelation. It's just that we have to get our lives uh, on on a, on a track to deal with sin as a regular basis as it comes along, and and it's just part of, it's just part of living the life. I mean, it's we we live in a corrupted world, and those things are just things we have to deal with. And uh, but God God's there to help us deal with them. There's, there's no excuse for us not dealing with them, other than we don't want Him meddling in our business. It's just something we like or something we don't want to deal with or something we're just too lazy to fix. And, you know, probably all of us got one or two of them once in a while. We need to do better here, but it's just, I, just, just too lazy to do it. But anyway, huh? No. <laughs> I do, so I'm going to be honest. The rest of y'all can hold whatever line you want to hold on that. I got a couple of things I need to dress up, and it's just going to take a little work. But anyway, appreciate you guys tonight, and I uh, hope we came away with it something meaningful, but... Uh, Good passage just just inspires us about who our God is and what he's going to do for us, but also to enlighten us about the fact that uh, he's serious about the issue of sin and serious about our lifestyle with him. So keep that in mind. See you next week. We'll try to wrap this up next week if I don't get caught up in another passage. So.